Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool's ready. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis today. And Jim, it's always fun when the woke get caught in their own effort to be super woke. And that's what's happening at Princeton University right now. They stepped right into this, and Betsy DeVos in the Department of Education uh, did not miss the opportunity. Uh, New York Post, Princeton University could be forced to pay back millions of dollars in federal funding and also be fined over its president's recent admission that racism persists at the Ivy League institution. In a letter to Princeton President Christopher Eisgruber, We'll talk about that later. The U.S. Department of Education said it was opening an investigation into a September 2nd letter in which he outlined the school's efforts to combat systemic racism. Quote, among other things, he said, racism and the damage it does to people of color persist at Princeton and racist assumptions remain embedded in structures of the university itself. Assistant Secretary Robert King of the Office of Post-Secondary Education wrote, Princeton's admitted racism raises questions about the accuracy of, quote, non-discrimination and equal opportunity assurances it's made to the DOE in exchange for more than $75 million in taxpayer money since Eisgruber took over in 2013. Officials are also concerned Princeton's many non-discrimination and equal opportunity claims to students, parents, and consumers in the market for education certificates may have been false, misleading, and actionable substantial representations. Princeton has to produce a host of records and written answers to questions within three weeks and also make Eisgruber and a designated corporate representative available for transcribed interviews under oath within four weeks. So, Jim, when you kneel to the mob, turns out you end up with a lot more work on your hands. Yeah, and Greg, it's interesting. There's a great irony. I just have a statement from Princeton saying that our rhetoric should be taken seriously but not literally. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Much like people said of Trump in 2016. Uh, look, you know, I, I think you can see Ice Gruber, and yes, we will skip all the diehard jokes. Uh, Ice Gruber saying that, look, you know, what he meant there was perhaps hyperbolic. What he meant was symbolic. Look, what I meant is that we're a racist institution, but not in a way that would jeopardize any federal funding. Um, and of course, that's, you know, look, if you were going to run around and say, uh, things like, you know, racist assumptions from the past and ran embedded in structures of the university, well, maybe, maybe that should be investigated. I, I don't just mean that. Like, there's a lot of people say, oh, this is brilliant trolling. And oh, man, what a way to, you know, hang them with their own words. But okay, I, there's a part of me in the back of my mind. It's like, all right, what happens if the Justice Department's Office of Civil Rights takes a good, long, hard look at Princeton University, talks to everybody there, talks to minorities about how they're treated, and looks at hiring practices, looks at promotions, looked at all the, uh, all the factors that make that university what it is. What if they come back and say, yeah, actually, we did find this. We did find that there is, in fact, racism, sometimes, as the uh, ice gruber said, quote, sometimes by conscious intention, but more often through unexamined assumptions and stereotypes, ignorance or insensitivity, and the systemic legacy of past decisions and policies. What if he's right? What should Princeton do? If you really believe this stuff, then you probably should be taking action to make this better. And you probably should be, you know, uh, the sort of, you probably should be investigated for, for systemic violations of civil rights. If you mean we have microaggressions, if you mean we have things that do not actually impinge people's civil rights or treatment under the law, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, comments that are considered insulting. People don't feel respected. They don't feel appreciated. They don't really feel like they 
fully have a seat at the table. Maybe they feel condescended to, and maybe they feel like they're, uh, they're representing a token and they're not really seen as equal with their peers. Uh, well, then that is something that should be addressed. It probably doesn't need necessarily a federal investigation. But what's useful about this is that this will probably put every other, not just university administrator, but hopefully every other CEO, everybody else who is in charge of a large institution, who will may be tempted to um, kind of win favor with the woke social justice mobs on social media by, by kind of self-flagellating and self-talking about how terrible their institution is and, and just how bad things are, um, but never quite taking responsibility for it and or recognizing that like, okay, if you say your institution is racist, then the institutions in our society that are specifically given the duties under the law to investigate on, you know, uh, racist treatment of others are going to investigate you. So maybe there's a consequence to this sort of rhetoric, and maybe it's time for Ice Gruber to say, well, we have some complaints, we have some problems we need to fix, but we are not at heart a racist institution. And maybe racism is not embedded in the structures of this university, because if it is, we probably wouldn't qualify for federal funding. Wow. Well, Princeton did uh, acknowledge one major racist uh thread throughout its history. It did recognize that Woodrow Wilson was a racist. Woodrow Wilson, former president of Princeton before he became governor of New Jersey and then the worst president in American history. Uh, they took his name off the Woodrow Wilson school there. If you got to cancel someone, it might as well be Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, by the way, like, you know, there's this, this blanket response to all these things. I talk about, you know, Fort Benning and how, if you actually look at what Benning said and stood for, maybe you're not such a big fan of this. Uh, Fort Hood, you know, there are, you can look at that and say, hmm, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily someone who we still want to honor in this same way. My argument had been, I got an interesting, you know, lengthy exchange with one reader about this who initially vehemently disagreed and then I'm, I'm rather proud to say gradually came around. If you wanted to say we should not name it after this person, um, they made racist statements in the past, they supported slavery, they fought on the side of the Confederacy. Some people will agree, some people will disagree. Uh, a lot of people will just kind of be initially resistant to it, in part because they've been calling it Fort Benning or Fort Hood for a really long time. If you come along and you say, I think we should rename this after Pat Tillman, was the example I used. But you could pick any one of dozens of other heroic figures in United States military history who don't have the legacy of fighting on the side of the Confederacy. You'd probably get a whole bunch of people who would not like that, you know, let's not have anything named after the Confederacy, who would jump on board with the idea because they really like the idea of renaming the base after Pat Tillman or some other heroic figure. So uh, there are ways to go around this. You can actually kind of build consensus and maybe actually not turn this into another uh, partisan football and culture war issue. But um, in order to do that, you have to want to do that. And my <laughs> suspicion is some people in these fights don't actually want to do that. There's still the Woodrow Wilson Bridge uh, that connects uh, Virginia. Yeah, but it's fallen America. down, so. All right, let's move to our bad martini now, Jim. And we are now about six and a half weeks away from election day and the ballots are going out early voting started today in virginia that's actually in-person early voting but the absentee ballot process is happening we talked about michigan's issues with actually getting the right names on the ballot for the presidential race uh, hopefully that gets resolved soon but then of course there's the ongoing debate about whether we can trust the security of the election will uh, the laws be enforced? Will we have the proper protections in place to make sure that the person who voted is the person who filled out the ballot and the ballot gets counted and, and rules are followed and things like that? And two of the things that historically have been used to make sure that the ballot is appropriately sent 
is to get it in by election day and to have a signature. Well, two states that are considered swing states, probably one more than the other, are raising eyebrows here. First of all, just this week, Pennsylvania officials have directed counties not to discard mail-in ballots solely because an election official believes a signature does not match the one in the voter's file. That's because the state apparently now has a uniform process for verifying signatures instead of leaving it to the discretion of local officials. But the bigger one comes from Nevada. And I think we've talked about this, and, and certainly the president and his allies are very upset with Nevada passing legislation earlier this year to uh, move from having to request an absentee ballot to doing universal mail-in ballot, the, the state mails out ballots to you. And the Republican National Committee is very upset about one provision, and I think it's easy to understand why, that the state legislature passed uh, earlier this summer, and that one of the provisions is that if an absentee ballot is received by 5 p.m., three days after election day, but is not postmarked, it will still be counted. And so they're arguing that's unconstitutional. Well, it certainly seems like it's uh, illegal and uh, a, a giant loophole here. So, Jim, we just talked yesterday about uh, officials uh, fudging the data with uh, coronavirus in, in Nashville. You want to have as few reasons to question the system as possible in Nevada, for sure. And to some extent, Pennsylvania here as well, not exactly instilling us with confidence. No, and, and look, on the signature one, I'm willing to cut a little bit of slack or a little bit of leeway because, you know, people's signatures can change over time. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, Greg, when I was, you know, if you're signing an important document, all the mortgage stuff, you know, you take your time, right? This is important. You know, this is an official document. I am sure I have signed my name to a credit card statement with <laughs> like, you know, just a squiggly line. And sure. you'd be really hard pressed to find a J or a G or anything else in there. There's only one word. I'm now in this Madonna, uh, one, one name category or something. You know, some people have very distinctive signatures. I'm thinking of the President Trump's, who, who looks like an EKG monitor. Um, <laughs> and of course, it was Jack Lew, the Treasury Secretary, whose signature was on a whole bunch of your bills. And it looked like just a whole bunch of circles uh, in a row. So if something, if the signature looks a little hanky, I just would like, you know, the election officials to check into it. Sometimes people's signatures change over time, depending on whether they're taking, you know, how much time they spend on the signature. So I'm less worried about that. It's the postmark that jumps out at me. Um, because, you know, for everyone can, as soon as you heard this, you can imagine the scenario where you find out that you're down by X number of votes. And if you need 304 votes to be put yourself over the top, well, then you now have the opportunity to figure out some way to manufacture 305 votes and then send them into the mail you know, several days after the election because you know how things went in the initial count. Again, I don't understand. I'm, I'm very laid back. I think it's fine if you end up mailing your absentee ballot on election day. I completely understand why you know, various election officials don't want to declare the winner and make things official until several days afterwards to give those mail ballots a couple extra days to get in. Let's also remember in a lot of cases, you've got uh, the usual absentee ballots. In most jurisdictions, you're going to have military ballots that are coming in from, they, send, they try to send them out very, very early, but they have to come in from aircraft carriers and air bases all around the world and you know, all kinds of unusual circumstances where it can take longer than usual to get that ballot back to the election jurisdiction. So I, I can, you know, as long as you're postmarked before election day or even on election day, I'm fine with that. Not requiring a postmark by the election date, that seems like something hanky and uh, something that would enable a great deal of, of shenanigans and fraud and things like that. So 
Uh, not, I cannot understand the logic of this. And I don't quite under, like when people wonder why are Republicans so freaked out about voter? Well, because of rules like this. If you can see, like the whole idea of, well, everybody should turn in their ballot by election day. You'd like to think we'd have a nice broad consensus on that, but apparently that's too much to ask for, Greg. I think it is. And, and you know, it harkens back to uh, the alleged shenanigans. And I think alleged is in quotation marks of uh, Mayor Daley back in 1960. And I like to point out that even though a lot of Nixon fans don't appreciate this, is that JFK would have still won the election, even if Illinois had gone to Nixon. But, uh, you know, we, we remember the ballots that were suddenly found in the 2008 Minnesota Senate race, uh, where Al Franken suddenly caught up to Norm Coleman. And, and obviously that became a very critical race. He became the final vote needed to get Obamacare across the finish line and so forth. So uh, it's not like there's never been controversies before. And now with uh, more and more people, obviously, given the pandemic and, and now no excuse absentee ballots in a lot of states, you want to provide as much confidence as humanly possible. And one way to do that, of course, is to actually get your ballot as soon as possible if you're going to do it this way and get it in as soon as possible. Uh, so there should be no controversy whatsoever. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter Podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms, and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter Podcast. Subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right crazy martini now, Jim. And we're back to Joe Biden and we're back to fracking. Joe Biden, of course, during the primary kept talking about how he's going to get rid of fracking. Uh, yeah, I know we're going to lose a lot of jobs, but don't worry, those, those green jobs will come along. Uh, and then he said a few weeks ago in Pennsylvania that Trump was lying about him wanting to ban fracking. So then he was at a town hall with Anderson Cooper on CNN last night in Pennsylvania again. And the issue of fracking came up and Biden did the impressive feat of flip-flopping on the very same question and the very same answer. Uh, here's Anderson Cooper with one of the actual most challenging follow-ups the, the entire evening. Let me just follow up on that. You said you, you won't ban fracking, but that you wanted to gradually move away from it ultimately. Um, it sounds like to some you're trying to have it both ways. That, that I mean, politically, it's understandable why you might say that, but it, if fracking contributes to climate change and climate change is an existential threat, why should it fracking continue at all? Well, fracking has to continue because we need a transition. We're going to get to net zero emissions by 2050, and we'll get to net zero power emissions by 2035. But there's no rationale to eliminate right now fracking. So, Jim, we're not going to get rid of fracking. But it is a transition thing to the future because we can't have it in the future. So if you're a fracking family or a fracking business, how much confidence do you have in Joe Biden constantly uh, checking to see where the, the pulse of his base and the pulse of the people he needs to win Pennsylvania are? You shouldn't. But the interesting thing is this comes after several days of this being a controversy, right? You right. think over after a while he'd get better at this and he really doesn't. He and also Harris in separate interviews have kind of given this vibe of, we are opposed to what fracking is doing to the environment, except in swing states. <laughs> Those places, it's fine. Those places, it can get, you know. And look, you, know, you and I have talked about this on this podcast several times. That like, this is probably the most key ingredient of what has made the United States from being dependent on foreign oil and being dependent on oil from places like Saudi Arabia 
less so from Venezuela and Russia, you know, agreed which in a, uh, uh, it was on, you know, states that are hostile to our interests and don't share our values. But you look at where we were in the Bush years and before, you know, there were a whole bunch of, oil was under the ground of a whole bunch of regimes that we don't like and that were, uh, you know, rather, uh, the, the, you know, that basically that gave them a certain amount of diplomatic and economic leverage over, for, over us. So the fracking revolution, which, you know, probably began in the late Bush years, but really accelerated in the Obama years. I suppose you can give the Obama administration credit for not lousing it up, but they certainly didn't do much to expand it. They certainly didn't want it in public lands and certainly were not cheerleading as it happened. Um, this was almost entirely fueled by the private sector, but bit by bit, field by field, all of a sudden it turned out, whoa, the United States has a whole lot of oil under its ground and a whole lot of natural gas under its ground. And all of a sudden, we had uh, energy reserves that put us on par with the Saudi Arabias and that rushes the world. And all of a sudden, we could offer energy resources, not just to, our t- to no longer make us dependent upon them, but we could offer them to our allies. Whether those allies appreciate it is sometimes a question. Think of Germany and the Nord Stream project, where Merkel, you know, who was apparently supposed to be tough on Russia and our president is supposed to be a pawn of Russia, keeps trying to build this uh, pipeline to make him even more dependent on Russian natural gas. The Trump administration opposes building this pipeline. So pointing out the details don't always match up with the popular narratives. We've ended up in a situation which, look, this is really important to us. Biden is saying he doesn't oppose fracking in all circumstances, but he also wants to drain it down or, or to, you know, to lower it down. One or the other. I, I don't think you can say, well, I support something, but I also want to see less of it. I'm, I'm not sure. I think that is inherently a contradiction because if you want to see less of it, you don't really think it's a good thing. There aren't a lot, like, for example, I support Jets wins and I want to see more of them. You don't see a lot of people saying, well, I want to see less of that thing that's great. Maybe people on a diet want to see less good food. That's the only scenario I can think of. That. So anyway, again, Biden's position is a mess. I, I, well, will this prove decisive in a state like Pennsylvania? I don't know. But I think it's safe to say the Trump campaign is going to be making sure everybody at every corner of Pennsylvania that has jobs related to fracking, make sure that this is the position of the Biden and Harris administration or the Harris and Biden administration, whatever they're calling themselves. <laughs> Like, there's a very simple way for, for the, the Biden campaign to make this issue go away. He's going to say, I support fracking, will not put new federal regulations on it. But he can't say that because that's not what he's going to do. Jim, you said it so well. Energy security is national security. I seem to remember, I think President Bush was saying things like that. And uh, back in the 2012 debate, Mitt Romney scored some pretty good points against uh, Barack Obama because Obama tried to claim credit for the fracking boom. And then uh, Romney pointed out, actually, you've tried to stop it everywhere you can on federal land, (laughs) which is what he had jurisdiction over. And uh, that's pretty much what Biden and Harris are planning to do on day one, too. And so they let it happen on, on private land. But I don't know if they have a lot of jurisdiction over that unless, you know, you get the EPA cranked up uh, with new regulations to the point what makes it unfeasible. But uh, if, if fracking is your thing, and, and oh, by the way, natural gas is clean. I never hear them say that. Not necessarily yes, it's blue and scary, Greg. <laughs> We've all seen, you know, on the show where they un- unhook the gas line and the house blows up, you know, Anyway, I don't think that's a winner for them, but uh, that could be a good martini then. Uh, Jim, have a great weekend, and we'll uh, see you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great weekend. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Launch podcast. Also, we're always grateful for a kind review and a five-star rating. You can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Launch podcast. And please join us Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.